Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of our show know, each and every week, uh, a guest and I offer a conversation regarding the weekly portion known in Hebrew as Parashat Teshavuah that is read in synagogues throughout the world. For those of you who may be new to our conversation, let me give you an introduction to the weekly Torah portion, Parashat Tashavuah. The Torah is known in English to many as the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. It is divided into 54 separate portions, each one named for the first word or words of the passage, and each linked to a specific week. The weekly portion is read aloud or chanted from the Torah scroll, as part of the service in synagogues, either Monday, Thursday, or Shabbat morning. There are a number of weeks in which there are double portions to accommodate the unique nature of the Jewish uh, leap year, and perhaps on another occasion, I'll go into greater depth about the Jewish leap year. My guest this morning is Rabbi Sam Joseph, of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He is the Eleanor Sinsheimer Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Jewish Education and Leadership Development. Hebrew Union College Jewish Institution of Religion is the seminary which ordains rabbis to work under the auspices and banner of the North American Reform Movement. It is also the institution that offers PhDs to a wide range of religious scholars through its graduate program. Our Torah portion today is known as Mitzorah. It begins with Leviticus 14.1, Leviticus being the third book of the Torah, and continues through the end of Leviticus 15. Last week's parasha described the signs of the mitzorah, commonly translated as leper, a person afflicted by a spiritual malady, which places him or her in a state of ritual impurity. This week's Torah reading begins by detailing how the recovered mitzorah is purified by the Kohen priest with a special procedure involving two birds, spring water in an earthen vessel, a piece of cedar wood, a scarlet thread, and a bundle of hyssop. A home can also be afflicted with tsa'arat by the appearance of dark red or green patches on its walls. In a process lasting as long as 19 days, a kohen, the high priest, determines if the house can be purified or whether it must be demolished. Ritual impurity is also engendered through a seminal or other discharge in a male, and menstruation or other discharge of blood in a woman, necessitating purification through immersion in a mikvah, a ritual bath. It is, as you will clearly hear, a very technical and unusual parasha, 
And so I want to begin my conversation with Rabbi Joseph by welcoming him to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, and right at the beginning, ask him how he would define for our listener this term, uh, Tsa'ara. First thing, it's good to see you, Rabbi Garten, and uh, 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 just uh, <clears throat> since of your many, many decades as a congregational rabbi, I know that... <clears throat> that for 13-year-old uh, boys and girls going through a bar bat mitzvah, this was one of the Torah portions that uh, their families hoped was not going to be for them to have to read and to explain uh, to the congregation at 13. <laughs> right. This is a narrative portion that is uh, uncomfortable for most who read it, and um, everybody would rather have Genesis 1. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so my, uh, I mean, my expertise is not in uh, the deepest of uh, understanding um, all the intricacies of biblical um, uh, uh, vocabulary and grammar, etc. Uh, I, I do know this for our listeners, which is uh, this idea that that tsara'at uh, or mitzorah um, means uh, leprosy is uh, pr pretty universally. Uh, not held uh, in the, the 21st century. Um, but certainly for uh, several centuries, that's how it's been translated. Uh, so I don't think that anybody's come up with sort of one name for it. We, we're pretty sure that, uh, certainly that it is a skin disease, uh, that it, the skin looks blotchy, it looks scaly, it looks scabby. Um, and uh, uh, certainly, the ancients were very concerned about any diseases, especially ones that could be seen. Uh, and uh, in uh, biblical times, up through a Greek, Greco-Roman times, people that uh, did have leprosy, um, and uh, they certainly were separated from the rest of the community. And we see a lot of this in, in, in biblical literature. Uh, what's so interesting, and you said it in the introduction, uh, to our conversation this morning is that the 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 Torah, the Book of Leviticus, and the this this idea of these core ancient books of of the Hebrew Bible see this disease as very much as a spiritual illness, and that's really what's 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 quite interesting for us to think about. Though we're not, I'm not going to go that whole way this morning with our listeners. But uh, whether this is uh, some sort of divine retribution or punishment to somebody that they get this terrible skin disease, whatever it is, uh, the, the writers of the Torah and the uh, people that wrote commentaries on the Torah uh, uh, certainly felt that to get rid of this disease, one had to go through a spiritual cleansing. So it's it's kind of interesting, as you suggested, that for uh, centuries the term sa'ara was associated with what you and I would identify as Hansen's disease, right. leprosy. But the biblical commentators went to great lengths to disabuse the reader of that. In fact, um, as you and I learned in. Uh, our ancient uh, studies, uh, being that we are ancient, um, the rabbis saw the term mitzorah as uh, analogous 
or as symbolic to uh, three Hebrew words, Motsi Shemra, that they saw it. Maybe you can best describe this concept of Motsi Shemra. Well, I don't know if I can best describe anything. Both of us could say that uh, they, they then played a word game, uh, which was to say that this was using God, bringing up God's name in some evil way. Uh, right. So, uh, and they could link that to Aaron. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, uh, again, that one could do and uh, and would do uh, as one of the possibilities of how to teach about this. Uh, I, I mean, I think to me, even more interesting, uh, but Rabbi Garten listeners know in advance because I told them where I'm headed <laughs> this morning, I'm not going down the, the path of, of these word games. I'm going to link it to something else that's I think closer to our all of our hearts right now, uh, and is that a house, as he said, could actually uh, be accused of, uh, uh, or not accused of, but pointed out that it also had this sarat. Rabbi Garten mentioned these green and red splotches, and there's a whole way of trying to purify the house. Right, and if as you suggested, this was a physical ailment, how is it possible that you can both have a physical ailment? And a house be the recipient or manifest the same uh, symptoms as an individual. So clearly this was not whatever the biblical text implied. It wasn't uh, a simple understanding of it. But through this process of cleanliness emerges the Jewish response through the ages to what uh, you do want to discuss, and that is how Jews have responded to illness, an illness that affected the population. And so perhaps you can help the listener make the transition from our Torah portion to the whole notion of uh, Jewish handling of epidemics. Right, right. and I th- so um, uh, what I would like to spend uh, the rest of our time and I'm going to need Rabbi Garten to flag me down, and time goes by very quickly. Sure. Jump in. You're not. Inter- I'm sure you're used to it. Not interrupting is uh, not. You're not being impolite. Is that uh, you know starting with the uh, Book of Exodus uh, and the tenth plague, uh, which is uh, uh, which happens becomes the first night uh, of Passover with the killing of the firstborn of the Egyptians, up through how do we respond today? Uh, to dealing with epidemics or or pandemics, because certainly what we're reading in this Torah portion, uh, implicit in this is they don't the, the writers are saying we don't want to spread of this, uh, whatever caused it, whether it's a, God is punishing you for sin or whatever, the Israelites need to know that uh, it's bad enough if one or two people get it, but they don't want the entire people of Israel. Uh, or uh, at least to be uh, uh, afflicted uh, with its sara'at, uh, or, or, or as I said, mis- we both know mistranslated leprosy. Uh, and so we need to come up with, we need to see this as thinking about how do we respond to getting to, um, uh, 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 how do we respond to fighting epidemics, fighting plagues, etc. And we've been living through it. Yeah, we're going to... Right. I, I was just going to say that, of course, the parasha and later Jewish commentators are not solely worried about individual transmission, but they're worried about how this impacts the entire community. Right. 
And what is the community's responsibility with regard to healing? And interestingly enough, of course, they assign responsibility to healing to well-respected members of the community. I mean, and again, uh, had we had uh, all morning to do this, there's so many connections we could make to the last couple of years of trying to deal with with the COVID. Uh, uh, and, and I would say that that it, it isn't uh, binary. It's not that they're not con- the writers aren't are not concerned with the person who has it or more concerned with the community. There is obviously the system. There's the symbiosis of uh, if somebody is sick, uh, the house can be sick and the person can be sick and the whole community can be sick. And look how we've had to respond in North America, in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, to shutting down houses of worship. Uh, bringing for how much of our diseases and our religion itself have uh, tried to evolve over uh, all these millennia. So while the Hebrew Bible, whenever there's epidemics mentioned, it's clear the writer's tales saw these epidemics as divine punishment for sin in some way. And it's God who chooses who's going to die, and it's God who chooses who's going to recover. Uh, Thus, from the ancient Hebrews, the proper response to a plague was to plead for God's mercy and forgiveness. Um, so when an epidemic kills thousands of Israelites after Korach's rebellion in numbers, uh, and we're told that how to stop the dying, well, Aaron had to burn incense with, right. to assuage uh, God. And, and you said so, Rabbi Gard, in the beginning, uh, where you read some of the very beginning of Leviticus 14, where there's burning and there's hyssop and, and all kinds of things to, to, to try to deal with this kind of spell. And that kind of, interestingly enough, takes us back to where you started with reminding us about the 10th plague, which we commonly call the uh, killing of the firstborn. And one of the ways that the Jews are protected is by uh, using the hyssop plant to place blood on the lintel of their home, which is very much in keeping with this chapter in Leviticus, that we paint something on the outside of our door. The hyssop act like a brush, by the way. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, Kind of as a talisman to suggest that we who are within are committed to community sanctity. Uh, Well, we could... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is... Obviously, during the existence of the temple sacrificial cult, the offering of sacrifices, as indicated in the parasha, seemed to be the means to ameliorate God's anger and to offer protective policies. But what happens in the Jewish community uh, subsequent to the temple's destruction in 70? How does this translate into community response? So, of course, with the destruction, we're skipping now just for everybody, just to keep everybody. We're, we're jumping hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years at a time, right? We're jumping from Moses. The first temple is destroyed in 586 before the common era. Second temple is 70 uh, of the common era. So, so with, with, and as Rabbi Garden says, when, when the temple no longer exists, and so sacrifices aren't happening and there's no priests and all that kind of stuff, it, it, the people are still appealing to God in some way to stop this, but they're not doing it with animal sacrifices or incense. So they develop new procedures. So we see in uh, in the law uh, called the Mishnah, which is compiled by the early third century of the common era, 
in other rabbinical writings that when an epidemic strikes a town, its residents would be would assemble for communal prayer and fasting. Uh, parentheses for again for listeners who may not know. Uh, so we're into this whole transition from sacrifice and chapter to now communal prayer, which takes the place. And now we're told communal prayer and fasting. So together with other penitential practices, such as abstention from bathing, uh, abs- abstention from sexual uh, relations, they're thought to that's thought to elicit God's forgiveness. Of course, what's what's one of the things that we know now in 2022 is that group assemblies are likely to be counterproductive. So, so it's more likely to help the spread of the disease than stop it. But there's no hint in early rabbinic writings of the understanding of disease has natural causes or that the awareness that illness could be contagious or that this contagion could be avoided. We don't see any of that up through the third, fourth century of the common era, uh, though they're, they're still saying God's causing this. And how do we appeal to God to say, stop it? We're good people. Right. Don't, don't do this to us. And in this paradigm of God causing the plague, is there some suggestion about what would motivate God to behave like this? Um, uh, I, I, so I'm sure there, there, there are motivations. Um, I think I'm not prepared this morning to go into that piece of it. Okay. But, I, but certainly, again, so that everybody knows, it, it certainly has something to do with not following God's law, not being loyal to what it means to, to be a, a godly person, um, that kind of thing uh, is probably whatever are considered major sins. Uh, and we can all start with sort of the core basics. If you're breaking any of the Ten Commandments, then certainly it's right. going to be. But, but, but there's certainly no suggestion that God is capricious about no, this. No, there's no suggestion of that. that. At least, again, the believers who wrote this believe that there was good cause for God to uh, look for justice or et cetera, and this is what's going to bring about the justice. So we make the transition from sacrifice uh, to communal prayer as a methodology of responding to the challenges to the community. And what happens? Do we find that the rabbis see this as a uh, viable means of uh, responding? Because the Torah portion seems to suggest that the priest has this unique potential to, quote, cure, end of quote, the malady that affects the house and the home. Do the rabbis suggest that prayer has the same uh, efficacy? Well, I, I would say it's probably prayer plus some sort of practice, right? Well, some sort yeah, of practice. Some sort of, so as, as you mentioned, uh, it could be ritual immersion in a ritual bath. It could be wearing special clothes. It could be put outside the camp. You know, whatever they're doing, trial and error that they see as as way of saying to God, I'm going to be a better person. I don't want to die from this. I don't want other people to die from this. But uh, again, the, there's not lots of this in Mishnah and in Talmud, which are the, 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 the legal tractates written in the several of the centuries after the destruction of the temple, of, which I say, how do we do Jewish now that there's no temple anymore? Right. I, I, there are also, and I think I'm sure that our regular listeners know this all the time, we joke in the Jewish community that two Jews have three opinions on all subjects, meaning that we don't agree a lot. In the Talmud, the, ra- the rabbis are at 
uh, um, are constantly arguing. I'll give you an example. So in one of the tractates of the Talmud, the rabbis advised that during a plague, one should stay at home. Uh, by the fourth century, they're saying, keep the windows shut. I mean, now, by the way, that sounds like stuff we were doing the last two years. I don't know about the window shut, but staying indoors, if we went to other things, wear a mask, which is sort of that kind of thing. Um, they, there's this whole uh, couple of uh, pages in the Talmud that of if you're on, if you're traveling, do you walk down the center of the highway or do you walk on the sides of the road? Um, it seems that walking down the middle was more uh, was considered that's what you should do when you travel. But if there's a plague, you should walk on the sides of the road, they say, because that's going to keep you away from possibly people that are in, uh, afflicted by it. Uh, but then that ran, then you run into this whole thing. Of what happens if somebody's sick? Are you supposed to go and visit that person? Now, one of the big commandments is visiting the sick. Uh, but, but the students of uh, Rabbi Akiba, who gets sick himself and recovers, say, well, if we go out and visit people who are sick, we're going to get sick. And so Akiba says, well, that's ridiculous. This, this rule is bigger than that, and you should go visit. Um, and he does go visit, parenthetically. Some modern scientists will maybe he now has the antibodies and he isn't going to get sick. They didn't know that, you know, uh, how many, millennia and a half ago. Um, but it, it's, it's, it is unclear uh, from the Talmud itself, except by different commentators, they, some say you should go visit, others say you shouldn't go visit. Again, they, they were wrestling with some of the big questions we do today, even though we're lucky with, with modern medicine that we can fight it with tools that they didn't know of. I mean, they, they were certainly there. Their toolbox had very, very few instruments in it that we can. I just had my second booster shot uh, yesterday. So, you know, they didn't know from, from any of that kind of stuff, for sure. So, interestingly enough, the rabbis of the um, second, third, fourth, and fifth century had a recognition that. Um, plague or communal illness was a real challenge to the very survival of the Israelite community. They weren't interested in other communities, not because they didn't care about their humanity, but their focus was on how to preserve their own community. And without the medical knowledge that we have today, they were encouraging people to recognize that plagues can't be ignored. Right. And I, and I would say by the, it seems from the commentaries of the 11th and 12th century, that prompt, that is commentaries on biblical texts, etc., that prominent right. rabbis began teaching that plagues and epidemics had natural causes, but that does link it to God. I mean, God is doing this for some reason. Sometimes it's, it's unfathomable. We don't know why God is doing this. Uh, others would say, yes, God is doing this because we're not following God's law. But it, it, is na it comes naturally. And by the 13th century, uh, we find for the first time in Europe, there are rabbis explaining infectious diseases as being carried in the air. So they, they were able to internalize uh, scientific learning within their religious perspective while other traditions in the middle of the Dark Ages were, uh, how should we say, uh, not willing to let the light of science shine upon their faith right. community. I mean, lots of challenges if we looked at what did it mean 
uh, to be Jewish and think a certain way in the midst of a of a medieval uh, Christian Europe and what's going on in Christianity at the time. We're totally for again this morning. We're not talking about Jews along the Mediterranean, sure. North Africa, etc. Um, uh, I, I the the idea that that um, uh, that it's carried in the air is amazing. They also taught that one should burn incense. Uh, and reading Jewish texts about temple rituals that happened before the destruction of the temple now could fight off that plague. Of course, the big thing that happens in the 14th century is the Black Plague. It, it ravages Europe. Um, Jews in tremendous numbers died. For another, even though they're often accused yeah, of having been say. the source of the Black yeah, exactly. Plague, I was going to say that's another whole radio program of that that uh, Jews were indiscriminately slaughtered. Uh, because they were accused of of causing this to happen. Um, but by the 16th century, uh, scientific methods are spreading through Europe, spreading through the peoples in Europe. And so uh, certain uh, responses to how diseases uh, come up and how we respond to diseases is being talked about. We see there, there's a very famous uh, but a bit arcane debate in Poland a legal decision, a man tries to get out of a contract where he's renting an apartment because he found out that the previous owner's wife suffered from an infectious disease. And he feels that, can the place be actually, uh, can we can we get rid of whatever she had in that apartment enough so that when I move in with my family, I'm not going to get the infectious disease? Yeah, the argument was, uh, was uh, rendered utter nonsense and that he, the person should rent it. But it was just interesting that that's already happening in the 1500s. Uh, right. And and that would have been uh, challenging to the notion of the Torah portion, that in fact, science, uh, as it evolved through the centuries, became the primary prism through which this Torah portion started to become looked right. at. Unlike other Torah portions that we've discussed on air during our show, where the commentators uh, had perhaps the final say of how to massage God's message. Right. Here, um, the message seemed to be so obtuse, or at least what God's meaning was was so obtuse that it gave freedom to the centuries of commentators to go far beyond right. the normal paradigm of how do we read the Torah. Uh, and do you think that this Mitzorah Sahara debate um, gives rise to a greater interest in medicine? I mean, some of the earliest uh, scholars of Jewish texts uh, find themselves as well-known physicians. Is there? What, might you speculate if there's some connection well, I'm there? Gonna, because I know that we're fast running out of time. I, I would. Um, I want to jump to right today. I just got back from two weeks in Israel, um, and uh, it, what what's uh, n amazing and at the same time not surprising is that Israel's been very strict on quarantine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but uh, there are Hebrew signs uh, around parts of Bnei Brak ultra-Orthodox area, it says by ministry, health ministry, we're going to study, close the study hall. And then in Yiddish, it says basically um, that the study hall is open and whoever wants to come learn and pray. So this idea of coming together, which is counterproductive to the plagues, etc., is, is still, despite the fact 
that were thousands of years from the destruction of the temple is still going on. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Samuel Joseph, Distinguished Service Professor Eleanor Sinsheimer, Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Jewish Education and Leadership Development at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, Ohio. I want to thank him for sharing with us this morning his wisdom. You can find a recording of this morning's show on the chri.ca website or on iTunes as a podcast. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day.